All right. This morning, we, we're going to go back to the subject of the tabernacle for the first hour. Um, we started our work on the tabernacle by looking at the subject of typology. We spent about two, I think, two hours, maybe three hours on tap, typology. And we dealt with some of the, the issues of typology and how everyone looks at the tabernacle as just the master class of typology. We talked about how we're going to try to control that. However, as we work through the study of the tabernacle, we will consider what everyone says that this represents this or this represents that. We will use it almost as a hypothesis. We will test it. We will challenge it and see what we can come up with. Then we went to the book of Exodus where we dealt with a perpetual parentheses, right? And we dealt with the fact that the perpetual part is our idolatry. The parentheses is there in Ezekiel, in Exodus, where there's a number of chapters there that seem completely out of place. But those chapters deal with the idolatry of Israel. And within those chapters, we believe kind of a solution to their problem is kind of presented. And we believe that all of those solutions to point to how to help their idolatry, which ultimately points to the work of Christ, actually points to the tabernacle because those chapters that serve as this parenthesis just happens to, uh, to be located where? Right in the midst of the description of the tabernacle. So I, I don't think that that's a coincidence that they would just throw this in the middle. Like you're getting all these details about the tabernacle and all of a sudden, wait, time out. We're going to interrupt this. Here's this story about idolatry. Now let's go right back to the instructions. So we feel that the tabernacle then points to the ultimate, ultimate uh, solution to our perpetual problem, which is idolatry and sin. So we think the tabernacle then, right there, at least to some level, serves as a picture to the work of Christ. Now, that's a far cry from saying every little detail points to Christ, right? That just means that the overarching concept of the tabernacle, what happens there, points to Christ. That's far different. So on one hand, someone could say, well, wait a minute, you're saying that then it's typology. No, what I'm saying is there's enough there in the tabernacle, and I think there's enough things in the New Testament that you can see the correlation, I, be- I believe. So we're, we are going to continue to to try to extrapolate that and pull that apart. Then, because there was a delay, because we worked a little bit on Ezekiel, um, when we came back, our, la- our last study, we just kind of went through a, a particular book that offered some reasons why the tabernacle is important, and we went through a number of those reasons. We considered them, whether we agreed or disagreed, and one of them at least frustrated and irritated me very much because uh, that's the, I think it was the last one, saying that the tabernacle is important because it shows us that we all need teachers. And that drives me absolutely crazy because the entire Protestant world is based on the premise that you don't need anything because you're the one judging the teachers. At the same time, you're supposed to need teachers. I don't know exactly how we make that work in our system. No one has been able to clearly articulate how that works uh, because I don't think anyone ever thinks about it. When you want to preach the need for teachers, you preach the need for teachers. And then when you want to blame the people in the pew for being, not judging the teachers, then you preach that sermon and no one ever raises their hand and put the two sermons together going, isn't this a contradiction? So we could spend the uh, next 15 years trying to work on that. 
but we will not. So what we're going to do today, very simple. Today, we're going to do kind of an overview of the tabernacle. That's what we're going to do today. And we're going to utilize Bible dictionaries. We're going to utilize two. We're not going to utilize at the beginning the one you have next to you. We'll use that later. We're going to start with a different Bible dictionary that you don't have access to. And then we're going to just kind of work through it and just try to, and why we're going to do this is we're just trying to have a a basic overview of our mind about some of the things about the tabernacle. And you can just, if you want, as we go through this, you can, on your notes, you can just call this tabernacle overview and just kind of write these down as bullet points. Just only write down the things that you think are significant, right? You don't have to write down every little thing, but just turn them into bullet points so that from this point forward, you can, and and in those bullet points, you can memorize, and then you'll have a basic overview of the tabernacle, meaning then, what does that always do that protects you when someone else comes along and tries to say things that are not completely accurate? So are you ready? Okay. This dictionary... I am using is the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, revised and expanded. And on page 1,524, this starts their entry on the tabernacle. And they do this. They have tabernacle, and then right after tabernacle, they have tent of meeting. Tent of meeting. So immediately we can, what can we pull from that? that the tabernacle refers to a tent of meeting. And so then what would be the obvious question? Well, who's meeting? Right? Tent of meeting? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, both. But I'm, I'm saying the first thing that comes to my mind is the idea of who's meeting. And we would obviously, we would uh, assume that at least one of the parties is God. Right? Or am I, is, 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 that's not an assumption. I think, I think that's an assumption. So, God. And then who, who else is meeting there? Then we, we can get into that. But the God part is, is, is just obvious, right? The God part, I think, is very obvious. But it's called tent of meeting. They go on to say this. Sacred tent, the portable and provisional sanctuary where God met his people from the time of Moses until the time of Samuel. So it was a, it's sacred. What makes it sacred? God, right? So there's the sacred part. It is portable, meaning it can be moved around. It is provisional, meaning, okay? It's a provisional sanctuary. Yeah, there's, there's something being met, right? And then this is key, where God met his people. So they, so it's a tent of meeting. They have God and his people. How the people meet God there, we'll get into and we'll try to see. But we get a basic idea that the, something to do with the tabernacle has something to do with God meeting with his people. There's a meeting that's supposed to take place there, right? And that they, they say that this provisional sanctuary was where God met his people from the time of Moses until the time of Samuel. Look at, they, they have in parentheses here, Exodus 33, 7 through 10. Let's look at it. Exodus 33. I don't know if it's going to give us that. I don't know why they have it here, but let's see why they want us to look at it. Of course, the Bible dictionaries do this frequently. They'll put scripture in a parentheses and guess what they'll do? 
They won't tell us, they won't quote from it or anything. All right. Well, let's see if we, I'm going to read from this translation, Exodus 33, verse 7. Now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp. That's kind of interesting to me, right? Because when we looked earlier in our study, we talked about God wanting to be a, build a sanctuary so he could dwell among his people, right? Here, this is being pitched outside the camp at a distance from the camp. He called it the, the tabernacle. Guess what this translation translates it as? Tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting. That was, are you ready for this? I don't know how your translations uh, pl- place it. That it was where? Outside the camp. Outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. When Moses entered the tent, uh, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow and worship each one at the door of his tent. Now what's interesting here, it's a tent of meeting, Right? But what's fascinating is it is located where? Outside. So the obvious question is, how does it go from outside to um, dwelling among the people? Does it always remain outside? Typically, when we look at a picture of the tabernacle, like on this poster, where is it? It's right in the midst of them. This has it where? Outside. This has it outside the camp. Everybody got that? And then they would watch Moses head to the camp or to the tent, right? They would watch him go there. So immediately we have some questions, do we not? Now, of course, guess what the dictionary does? They don't, they don't, say, they don't say anything at this point, but let's see what happens. A tent was also the dwelling place of a nomadic person, all right? Okay, maybe so, there's something to that, but I don't want to get too uh, go to too much typology here. When the sac- when the sacred tent was met, it was typically used with some distinguish- distinguishing epithet. Two com- compound phrases are used most often as a des- to designate this tent, translated respectively as tent of meeting. Right. Look at Exodus twenty nine. 42 and 44 and see how it's translated in your translation. Exodus 29, 42 through 44. Exodus 29, 42. What, what is it? How does it read? Okay, that says tent of meeting. How does the King James? Tabernacle of the congregation. All right, so it's translated two different ways. They're tent of meeting or tabernacle of the congregation. Look at verse 44. How does 44 read in the NIV? Tent of meeting. How does it read in the, tab, uh, the uh, King James? Tabernacle, tabernacle of co- the congregation. All right. Uh, so, and then look at number 17, 7. Number 17, 7.
number 17.7. And what do we find there? In the NIV, number 17.7. Tent of the covenant law. The King James. The tabernacle of witness. Some have this as the tent of the testimony. Now, let's just, there's a couple more names here. Let's start putting them together. So let's go with the first one. We have, you may want to write these down, just some of the names that the tabernacle is known by, right? We want to at least have this down. We clearly have a tent of meeting, right? Implying that some kind of meeting is going to take place there. That seems to be okay, right? The tabernacle of the congregation, which again kind of carries the idea, right? The congregation is going to be there. The congregation is to come there. This, carrying the same idea of the tent of meeting. The tent of, what, how did number 17.7, how did the NIV translate number 17.7? The tent of the covenant law. The tent of the covenant law, all right? Seeming to connect the tent with law and with the covenant, right? Now, which covenant? Or I don't know. This is called the tent of the testimony, or the tabernacle of witness is the King James translation. Tabernacle of witness, meaning that the tabernacle, it, it's bearing some kind of connection. It's witnessing to something, some kind of testimony, covenant, law. It's connected. It's bearing witness to it. It's a testimony of either the law or the covenant or both. I, th- I think that gives us a, maybe a greater idea of what's going on here. Possibly. Look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2, look at verse 28 through 30 and see what, how it's referred to there. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. Yeah, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. The tent of the Lord... Okay, I think the King James should be somewhat similar. 1 Kings 2, 28 through 30. Tent of the, or tabernacle of the Lord. Okay, so once again, now this emphasizes what? The, the Lord's dwelling place, right? It, it belongs to the Lord. Okay, so, so we have that. Um, Now, they, uh, well, they, they're gonna, they may talk about some, some more here in a minute. So let's just try to put that all together. So we get, we're getting kind of a basic idea, right? A meeting is supposed to take place there, right? Between God and his people. That it somehow bears a witness. It's a testimony to possibly covenant or law. Somehow it's connected to that. And ultimately it belongs to whom? God. And it's, the, it's the dwelling place for God, Right? Um, they say in each, uh, in each case, the term refers to the place where the God of Israel revealed himself to Moses and dwelled among his people. Now, once again, they have him dwelling among his people, even though the first passage that we referenced there, the tent was outside of the camp. We'll have to figure out where, why and how come. The tent itself symbolized God's dwelling in the midst of the Israelites. All right. Um, now, look at uh, Exodus 25.9. Look it up in the Blue Letter Bible app, Exodus 25.9, if you can. Exodus 25.9. They're going to make some uh, claims here about the Hebrew. Exodus 25.9, before we read their claims, let's see what we find. 
You'll note in Exodus 25, 9, this is how it reads in the King James. According to all that I shew thee after the pattern of the tabernacle. Everybody see that? Yes? Okay. All right. I'm going to look up the word tabernacle. It's this Hebrew word. Strong's age 4908. Mishkan. 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 Now, Mishkan is used, or is used 139 times. 119 times is translated tabernacle. Dwelling nine times. Habitation five times. Dwelling place three times. Place one time. Dwelleth one time. Tents one time. Uh, Mishkan is a residence, including a shepherd's hut, a lair of animals, figuratively the grave, also of the temple, the tabernacle. It's outlined in biblical usage as dwelling place, dwelling place, dwellings. So it's a dwelling place. Now they're going to make a big deal out of this. This is what they're going to say. That this comes, this Hebrew word here, Mishkan comes from a verb meaning to dwell. In this sense, it's correctly translated in some instances as dwelling, dwelling place, habitation, and abode. Four times the phrase tabernacle of the testimony is used to describe the tabernacle. When the term for testimony is used, it invokes the presence of two copies of the law within the Ark of the Covenant that rested within the tabernacle. So when they say tabernacle of testimony, so in a sense, the tabernacle is a dwelling place for, in a roundabout way, in a sense for God and his law. All right, okay. We're, we're, we're kind of we're getting at least a picture. In other words, all of these names begin to create what? They create a picture of kind of what what's going on with this tent. A meeting is to take place, right? Between God and his people. Everybody got that? It, somehow it's a witness and a testimony to what? His law. Possibly his covenant. We see the law more than the covenant. I still don't know where the covenant necessarily fits in, but we definitely see now the law. And it's a dwelling place for whom? God, all right? So we're getting a basic idea of what the tabernacle is there for, all right? The Old Testament, are you ready for this? This is where we're going to have to really put our thinking caps on. The Old Testament mentions three tents or tabernacles. Three tents or tabernacles. All right. Does everyone know that there was three? Okay. Now, li- now listen, we got to think this through. We're going to look at their claim. We're going we're to treat this as a hypothesis, okay? Were there three? Or was it just, do we refer to them as three? Or is it just the same one? that was placed in three different locations for a specific reason. We'll, we'll see how we want to answer this, all right? Here we go. Here's what they say. The Old Testament mentions three tenths of tab, or tabernacles. First, after the sin of the golden calf at Mount Sinai, the provisional tabernacle was established. So the first one they're going to call what? The provisional tabernacle. They're going to call the first one the provisional tabernacle. Now, at least that's kind of the name I'm giving it. They, they, they don't necessarily call it that. They just call it the first one. I'm going to call it the provisional tabernacle. And when, did, when does one, this one get set up? After the sin of the golden calf. And guess where it's established? Outside the camp. 
outside the camp. And this is the one referred to as the tent of meeting. And we read about this, guess what? Exodus 33, 7. Exodus 33, 7. If you want to look at Exodus 33, 7 to verify that we're t- that this is telling the truth. We've already looked at it, but just want to look at it again. Exodus 33, 7. Verify that it's outside of the camp. And it is referred to as what in Exodus 37? The tent of meeting. So we can call you can call it provisional or you can call it tent of meeting. Now, I, I, my, I'm only a little leery of calling it a tent of meeting because I don't know if the other ones are ever referred to as the tent of meeting. But I'm assuming they're all referred to a tent of meeting in some way because that term seems to indicate what happens there, right? So I'm going to call this the provisional one after the, the sin of idolatry on Mount Sinai. Okay. Yeah, t- yeah. Some of them refer to. Yeah, some call it the Tabernacle Congregation. Yeah, same thing. It's a meeting. That that, that one just states who's meeting the congregation, right? Of, so the people of Israel. All right. So, so we have that one. All right. Now the second one. So the first one we'll call it provisional tent of meeting. It's established outside of the camp. Please note it's outside of the camp, and it happens after the sin of the golden calf. The second is called the Synatic Tabernacle. The Synatic Tabernacle. S-I-N-A-T-I-C. The Synatic Tabernacle. And it was built in accordance with directions given to Moses by God. And this is the instructions found in Exodus 25 to 40. Right? Those are the instructions we're very familiar with, right? Right? Remember, it's in the middle of those instructions that we get the perpetual parentheses, right? Now, guess what? This one is often often called the tent of meeting uh, as well. That's why I don't want to call the first one the tent of meeting. See why I didn't want to call the first one the tent of meeting? Because the second one's the tent of meeting. So what we're going to refer to is the first one is the provisional that happens after the golden calf incident on Mount Sinai, right? And the second one, we're going to refer, they, you're going to use the term synatic. That's okay. We're going to refer to it as the synatic one. And this one follows the instructions of Exodus 25 through 40. Unlike the original tent of meeting, it stood at the center of the camp. Now this one is moved to inside the camp. Now, the question is, how did it go from outside to inside? Like, isn't that a good question? Okay, well, it's portable, but like, why did it move? All right, this one, they, they point to, um, I can find it. They point to Numbers chapter two. So look at Numbers two and see if you can find the, the tent being in, uh, being in the center of the camp. See if you can find it in Numbers 2. They don't give a specific verse, so that makes me a little nervous. The okay, that's Numbers 2, verse 2. Yeah, okay, there we go. Numbers 2, verse 2. So now it's inside the camp, and they're around it. Got it? So what happened? All right, that's Numbers 2, verse 17. All right, so now we're where? We're inside the camp. Now, 
What happened? I don't know. Now, is it possible? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw out a hypothesis. The first one was built for what reason? The people had committed the sin of the golden calf, right? So God is outside the camp to try to deal with some of their issues, right? And then at some point, the issues are dealt with to such a degree that now God is dwelling in the midst of them. But guess what? Some of the same things are still needed, right? Remember we talked about the things that are needed to deal with the perpetual problem? Now you're going to have a mediator. You're going to have an advocate. You're going to have a sacrifice. So, so maybe it's initially outside the camp to start dealing with the problem. Now God can dwell amid, uh, uh, in the midst of the people because those problems are being dealt with on a regular and consistent basis, right? Now the entire sacrificial system has been established. That's the only way I'm going to look at it. Guess what the third one is? The Davidic tabernacle. The Davidic tabernacle. This one was erected in Jerusalem for the reception of the ark. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 17. And tell me if we feel that this is an accurate description. All right, Second uh, Samuel, that's what, 617? I'm in 717, so I'm like, you're making things up. 617, we read, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. They're referring to that as a tabernacle. It's a tent. And guess what's going to be there? The ark. Therefore, now, you, you could be asked, well, where's the tabernacle, right? That, that, you could be asked, where's the tabernacle? I don't know. But they're calling this the Davidic. All right? So we have the provisional, the synatic, and the Davidic. The provisional, the synatic, and the Davidic. The synatic is the one that we're very familiar with because that's the one that's described in Exodus 25 to 40. The the provisional was built before those instructions. It appears. This is how, this is what they describe. Are you ready? The original tent of meeting was a provisional edifice where God met with his people. Apparently, only Moses actually entered the tent to meet God. After the golden calf was made, God refused to acknowledge Israel as his people or to dwell in their midst. The people's sin brought estrangement. To symbolize the distance from God their sin had created, Moses pitched the tent of meeting outside the camp. Ultimately, God acquiesced to Moses' appeal and his presence returned to the midst of Israel in Exodus 40, verse 34. Go to Exodus 40, verse 34, and let's see if we can verify this truth. Exodus 40, verse 34. Exodus 40, 34. What do we find here? Okay, there's the glory returns. Now, let me, does everyone have your notes for the chapters that were part of the perpetual parentheses? Do you have your notes for that? 
32 to 34, guess where the provisional one shows up? Exodus 33. They're dealing with the sin. So guess what? The provisional tabernacle established all of those things that are required to deal with the perpetual problem. The perpetual parentheses gives us the provisional tabernacle. See, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all the same letters. Okay, I'm not trying. But the perpetual parentheses gives us the provisional tabernacle. And that provisional tabernacle gives us the elements that are required for God to dwell amongst his people. And what were those elements that the provisional tabernacle and everything that happens in building it, what were those if you wrote them down? Because we covered them multiple times. We need a mediator, an advocate, an intercessor, judgment of sin, atonement, and a veil, right? All of that is established around what? The provisional tabernacle. And guess, could the people go into the provisional tabernacle? They could not because they were dealing with a perpetual problem. Who could go in? Moses, because he was their advocate, their mediator, their intercessor. Well, it looks like he could go in, but when he went inside, the people stood up. It appears. Now we could we could look up every we could look up every verse about the perpetual one, but I'm just saying what where whatever he did, Moses got to go to it. Right? Moses got to go to it. But it was put put where? Outside of the camp. You can't tell me that this is a coincidence. This is, now this is where things are starting to d- demonstrate a picture, right? Because in the midst of the giving the, think about this is weird. The, in the midst of the instruction for the synodic tabernacle, in the, in the midst of that instruction, we have then this parentheses of this story of the sin of the golden calf. And then in the midst of that, a provisional tabernacle is set up. Right? God's not even done with the instructions, correct? He's not even done. And next thing you know, we have a tabernacle. But where is it? It's outside the camp. Who goes to it? Moses. Because Moses has to stand between God and the people because God wants the people dead. So Moses, and then what's established here is all of those provisions that are necessary for the people. And once that's established... Once the perpetual tabernacle is established, then at some point, those, it's not because of the tent, it's because of everything happening there, right? You got an advocate, you have an intercessor, you have a mediator, you have a judgment of sin. Once those things are established, then God can then move into the midst of the sinful people because now he has a plan in place to deal with their perpetual problem. Did they stop sinning? No. Did they become immediately better? No, God had to do a work for them, for him to dwell in them. Not that they had to do the work. God had to do the work because they perpetually were continuing to sin, which to me shows you how we should understand Christianity, right? Christianity is not about what I can do. It's about what God has done for me. And unless God does that for me, it's not about me proving that somehow God has done something for me because I can't prove God has done something for me. What God has done, it's established in the work of Jesus Christ. If you want proof of my salvation, don't look to me, look to where? 
Christ. If for Israel, if they wanted proof of them being secure for God, don't look to them keeping the law because they kept breaking the law. Where did, you, where did they look for their security? Blood on the altar. Right? That, it, it, like, I don't understand how, it, 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 it's only in the Protestant world where we've so utterly annihilated this. We, we're the ones who say, the gospel, the gospel. And we, we do everything in our power to be more Catholic than Catholics. I cannot, every time I take five minutes to study Catholic theology, all I can say is, ladies and gentlemen, we, we, we are more Catholic than Catholic. I'm telling you, we are better. And, and I don't know if y'all heard the podcast this week. There's a lot of discussion about, well, you know, people are de-churching. People are de-churching. People are de-churching. People are de-churching. Well, what are we going to do? How are we going to get the people to come to church? Because no one's coming to church. So John Piper gave an answer. You know what the answer is? If you walk away from the church, you're not saved because the church is your mother. Well, the minute I heard that, you know immediately where my mind went to the Catholic catechism because Catholic church refers to the church as mother. And guess what? Can you be saved apart from the church? No. Well, Piper just gave us a Catholic answer. When we would, what we should say is my salvation is not dependent upon a church. It is dependent upon what Christ did 2,000 years ago. Where? outside of Jerusalem on a hill where he shed his blood. Had nothing to do with the church. Now, am I saying the church is not necessary? I'm not saying the church isn't necessary. It's not necessary for what? My salvation. And you can't come along and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we know if you don't go to church, then you prove you're not saved. Now, when, since when did my salvation become prove, proof by being inside a church? Because don't we typically say that people could come to church and not be saved? So how can you can come to church and not be saved at the same time and be proof that you are saved? There's no logic in the Protestant world. The Protestant world has no logic, no thinking, and all we ever do is to undermine the very gospel that we supposedly split from the Roman Catholic Church to fight. All we did, I say it all the time. The only thing the people wanted in the Protestant Church wasn't a gospel. They wanted what? What do you think most people in the Protestant Reformation wanted? Did they want a gospel of grace or did they want something else? They didn't want a gospel of grace. They wanted autonomy to be able to say what is right and what is wrong. They wanted to be their own pope. And that is still no different in 2023. People want to be able to tell a church, you're wrong, I'm right, and I will do what I want. And you can't tell me what to believe. Even if it goes after the very gospel, they claim that they're defending. This whole thing is a beautiful picture. In the midst of the the instructions for the synodic tabernacle, a provisional tabernacle is built and it's outside the camp because the people have a perpetual problem. And inside that perpetual tabernacle, the basic elements are established. And once those basic elements are established, the, the provisional tabernacle can be moved inside the camp. Now it's the synodic tabernacle, and it's there to do what? To continue to provide the provision for what the people need. We need a continual provision for our perpetual problem. 
Our perpetual problem is sin. Our perpetual problem is idolatry. And we need a perpetual provision. And that perpetual provision is not found in the people ever keeping the law. It's found in Christ's finished work. And everything in that tabernacle points to what? What Christ did. Does anything in the tabernacle point to what we do? No. In fact, you come to the tabernacle admitting what? That you don't do it. Like, that's the most beautiful, powerful picture. I I, I cannot even express to you how significant this whole thing is. All right? I'm going to read this paragraph again because we just said, we just completely now have proven everything that we spent all of those hours working on. All right? The original tent of meeting was a provisional edifice where God met with his people. This is found in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. What was the parentheses chapters? 32 to 34. So right in the midst of the parentheses, we have the provisional tabernacle. Apparently, only Moses actually entered the tent to meet God. So they say that Moses entered the tent to meet God. Uh, After the golden calf was made, God refused to acknowledge Israel as his people or to dwell in their midst. The people's sins brought estrangement. To symbolize the distance from God their sin had created, Moses pitched the tent of meeting outside the camp. Ultimately, God acquiesced to Moses. I don't necessarily like it that way, but okay. Um, And his presence returned to the midst of Israel in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. What What happens in Exodus chapter 40? All the instructions are complete for the synodic tabernacle. Once the instructions are finished and that tent is built, then guess what happens? God's presence goes from outside the camp to inside the camp. Because the people got better? No, because now what is established? A provision for the people. Does that make sense? That Man, if, if somebody should go, ooh, ah, oh, that's powerful. Yeah, the whole, everything in the tabernacle provides everything that the people needed for, for God to dwell in the midst of them. Yeah, right. And, and it was provisional. The first one was provisional because it was temporary. Yeah, all right. Do, oh, wait, what did you say? Oh, I thought, okay. All right. Now, now, here we go. The exact nature of this first tent, the provisional one, is uncertain. It apparently formed the headquarters of the camp until the building of the Sinaitic Tabernacle. Joshua guarded the tent in Moses' absence. Look at Exodus 33:11 to verify this. Does Joshua guard this tent, the provisional tent, in Exodus 33:11 or no? Okay. Well, I don't know if he guarded it, but he never left it. Okay. So he was always there. All right. Since the earliest Greek translation, some would equate Moses' tent in Exodus 18.7 with the tent of meeting, but scripture does not explicitly make this connection. The people could all go to the tent of meeting to seek the Lord, whether to look for God's answer or to a judicial case and petition uh, in worship or for a prophetic word. Apparently Moses acted as the prophet, judge, who took the people's questions to God and received answers since to seek Yahweh usually appears in a prophetic context. Yeah, 
Moses serves as the prophet. He serves as the priest. He serves as the advocate. He serves as the mediator. But all of this deals with the provisional tabernacle, which is going to be required to meet their their perpetual problem. There God met his people with the pillar of cloud, uh, descended to the entrance of the tent. Moses called it the tent of meeting because that is what God had called the tabernacle when he instructed Moses regarding its ultimate construction. The first tent of meeting did not contain an ark. The items necessary for worship or possess a priesthood. The tent was cared for by Joshua, while Aaron was responsible for the latter tabernacle. The cloud descended on this tent only when Moses came to inquire of God, but the cloud stayed on the permanent tabernacle where the glory of the Lord filled it so that Moses could enter it. So they're just showing the differences between the provisional and the synatic. Right? There were some differences. There were some differences. Obviously, because all the instructions aren't done yet, right? Okay, so that makes sense. Um, the center of attention in the wilderness narratives is the tabernacle proper, we'll call it the synatic, um, with its rich decorations, curtains, uh, bread of the presence, ark lights and altar. This is the portable sanctuary, the transport of which Israel carefully delegated to the priest and the Levites. The camp of Israel had the tabernacle at its center. This too is the tent of meeting where holy God comes to sinful people. Here the sacrifices and atonement procedures of the book of Leviticus were carried out. I will also meet with Israel there and that place will be consecrated by my glory. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. The plans for the tabernacle are laid out in Exodus 26 through 27. The courtyard is described as having a two to one ratio. It was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. The tent itself, um, the tent itself placed on the west end of the courtyard was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. Within the courtyard before the entrance was the bronze altar Between the altar and the entry to the tent was a bronze laver holding water for washing. Now they're giving some of the basic elements. We'll come back to these basic elements multiple times. Uh, The main goal that I wanted to accomplish here is to show you how this beautiful picture all comes together. All those times that we spent for the uh, perpetual parentheses now all comes together in the provisional tabernacle, which now moves over to the synatic one. And the main one, okay? All right. Uh, the entrance of the tabernacle was on the eastern side of the tent, with the rear of the tent placed west. Within the tent was the holy place, and the most holy place separated by the veil. Placed within the holy place was the altar uh, of incense, the table of showbread, and the golden lampstand. Inside the most holy place were two cherubs rested on the Ark of the Covenant. Their wings spanned so far as to touch the side walls of the most holy place, thus covering the Ark. All right. Findings from the mid 20th century suggest a striking similarity between the military tent of Pharaoh, Ramses II of Egypt, and that of the wilderness tabernacle. Resemblances between the two uh, structures include the two to one ratio of both the courtyard and the tent, and a familiar east west orientation of the tent. Further, in Pharaoh's tent, the inscription of his name rested on the throne, which was covered by two winged falcons that represent the falcon god Horus. The similarity to the Ark of the Covenant covered by the cherubim and the Holy of Holies is obvious. Hence, it is likely 
that the pattern of the tabernacle, though given to, to Moses through divine revelation, clearly resembled the earlier tent constructed for use by Pharaoh when his armies went to battle. Now, let's stop right there. I hate that so much. I hate that so much. Because you know exactly and immediately what a skeptic or atheist would say. And they would say it like before I could even get done reading that. What would they say? Yeah, this is not anything doing with God. They just give God credit for basically creating their own version of Pharaoh's tent. And that Christian, that Judaism was just copying Egyptian. Now, that's been talked about. Look, that is, that, just make sure you understand, that is a common attack upon Christianity, right? They, people claim that all of Catholicism is simply Babylonian, you know, uh, paganism brought into Christianity. Uh, some people say everything of Christianity is borrowed from paganism. I mean, look, this, this idea of, of connection to pagan, paganism, it never stops within Christianity, does it? Why do some people not celebrate Christmas? It's connected to paganism. Like, there's so many things that, that, that's a constant uh, accusation of. And I, I hate it. Um, I mean, well, how do you combat it? I don't know how you combat it. Because you, you, to, for us to combat it, what would we typically say? Well, the Bible says, which is, what, what is that? What kind of logical fallacy is that? Circular reasoning. How do I know it's true? Because the Bible says it's true. And the Bible is the word of God. Like, now, Christians think that that's some brilliant argument, but from anyone who's following the laws of logic, it's like, oh, is it convenient that the right answer is in the book you say is right, and you know it's right because you say it's right, and so you give me an answer from a book that you say is right, and if I offer an answer from a different book, then you just say it's wrong because it's not from your book. That, oh, oh, I hate that. Now, on one hand, if we're not going to look at it from a skeptical standpoint, you could argue that what God is doing here, now, now, I, now I have no scripture to prove, well, I do have a scripture somewhat to prove this. We typically understand that all of the plagues Right, like, why did God take all of that time to deliver them from Egyptian bondage, right? We typically argue that the plagues were done for what reason? It was attack upon Egyptian gods because God wanted to demonstrate that he was greater than all their gods. And in the Egyptian world, as far as at least a human representation of deity, they would have looked to whom? Pharaoh to some point, right? I'm, I'm not going to say that that's a... I'm not, yeah, I, I think you have to argue that he's basically treated as God, deity, right? So this is God showing that no, 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 no. You're familiar with that. You've seen that. Now I'm going to take it and show you that no, I'm God. So that maybe it was a way in order to try to combat their idolatry, right? Because, well, clearly when they build a golden calf, where, where did they get that idea from? They got it from Egypt, obviously, right? Obviously. So they were still clinging to Egyptian things. So maybe this was a way of God taking that 
and making it his. Now, the Catholic Church follows that practice throughout church history, and they get attacked for that, right? If there's a certain pagan holiday, Christianity, would, uh, Catholicism would come along and do what? If there was a pagan holiday, Catholicism would come along and do what? Make it a Christian holiday and point to something about God. And, get, and they, get, they, get, they get torn apart for doing that, do they not? Protestants love to go, pagans, pagans, pagans. Like, and all, but I think, is this possibly the first example of it? And if it is the first example of it, you can't be blaming the Catholic Church. You'd be blaming what? Who would you be blaming for this? God. Now, isn't it amazing? The same people say, I'm not going to have anything to do with that because it's connected to paganism. Well, you may not want to have anything to do with what? The tabernacle. <laughs> because it, has, it may have this connection to Egyptian paganism, right? Maybe. Okay, y'all might, may not be as convinced of, of that as I am. All right, I'm going to stop right there. We'll come back to some of that next time. But that, I, I think I want you to see. So three tabernacles. What are they called? Provisional, synatic, and Davidic. The provisional happened as a result of the perpetual problem, the sin of idolatry with the golden calf. It was placed where? Outside the camp. But outside the camp, in a sense, certain of those elements that are needed are present. And those elements then, once the synatic one is built, transfer from the provisional to the synatic. Now God can dwell amongst his people and he can dwell amongst his people, not because the people became more obedient or become good, because we know they don't. It's because of the work of God through that system, which ultimately points to Christ. And why can Christ dwell, in a sense, in us through the, uh, uh, by the presence of the Holy Spirit? Not because we're good, but because of the work of Christ. All right, there we go. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, I pray somehow in this hour we have seen the power and beauty of your work, not only in what you did in the tabernacle, but ultimately what you did in Christ. And that we understand that you dwell with us and we will dwell with you, not because of how good we are, but because of how perfect your son and his work was. And we cling to that and we do so in the name of Christ. And God's people said...